everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to anxiety, OCD, the treatment of those things, and trying to get your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I'm a licensed therapist, uh, and I am a specialist in OCD and anxiety and anxiety spectrum disorders. I am delighted that you have decided to uh, spend your time with me on this episode today, and thank you uh, to all of you returning listeners, and uh, uh, welcome to all of you um, new listeners. This FearCast is dedicated to trying to answer your questions about anxiety, about OCD, what it is, how it works, how to, and more importantly, how to beat it, uh, and what we can do to try to overcome it as best we possibly, possibly can. It's a question and answer based podcast. So if you have a question that you'd like me to answer, uh, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com, uh, go to ask a question link, um, navigate towards the top of the page, it's going to be up there, uh, and send me a question. I will answer a question, and that's indeed what I'm going to be doing on this uh, very special episode. So I'm going to be answering a question uh, near the end. I'm going to be answering a question about cognitive distortions. This is not something we've actually talked about before, uh, at least in depth, but um, it's a uh, it's a really important part of cognitive behavioral therapy. Obviously, it's it's part of the name. They share parts of the name, the cognitive part. Um, you already got that. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit about how to, or what they are, how to work with them, uh, why they they're important uh, a little bit later on. But first, I wanted to talk about anxiety in the news. That's right. Sometimes we are so lucky as to see anxiety and OCD, good stuff, pop up in the news. And 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 lo and behold, this week, um, actor, comedian Bill Hader uh, posted a video on YouTube where he's talking about his own struggles with anxiety um, and, and most importantly, how he was able to overcome it and some of the things that he did. So what I want to do is just to play that video. It's super short. It's like literally four minutes. It'll zip right by. But in this little clip, he talks about the little part of our brain that tells us what can go wrong. Now, we all have this part of our brain. It's it's because you and I have human brains. It's kind of a human brain sort of thing is to have this little voice in our brains that tells us, you know, what could go wrong, how it could go wrong, what sort of ways it's going to impact us, usually negatively and all that stuff. So before I go into too much about the video, I'll just play the audio from it and then I'll add what my little thoughts are at the end. Hi guys, uh, my name is Bill Hader, and um, I, uh, since I was a very young kid, uh, had really bad anxiety um, my whole life. Uh, I've dealt with, uh, you know, having to take everything from, I, if I knew there was a big test, to uh, getting on the school bus and doing that by myself, or any of those things. Um, I just uh, didn't think I would be able to do it, and there was always a little voice in my head telling me, uh, here's all the things that could go wrong. And as you get older, th that, that sticks around. And uh, so when I was, boy, in my mid-30s was when I officially tried to do something about it because it was affecting my job as a performer on live television. Um, which is like, for someone with massive anxiety, that's a crazy job to have. Um, but I loved my job, so I was gonna figure out how to, how to deal with this. And what helped me was, was learning that um, the, it, 
it doesn't really go away, you manage it. And instead of pushing away your anxiety, and I always imagine my anxiety as this little monster that would kind of attack my face or pull up my ears or, you know, uh, and instead of pushing that thing away and trying to fight it, I would just go, hey, oh, hey, buddy. You know, it was like a little uh, monkey, and I would just kind of go, okay, here, let's sit on my shoulder, sit on my shoulder, let's hang out, let's just chill out, you know. There it is. And so every time I would get nervous, I would just become friends with it. I know that sounds kind of corny maybe, <laughs> or a little silly, but it's true. It, it, it helped it kind of alleviate, you know, that, that fear. And, uh, and I, so I don't push it away, put your arm around it and go, oh, there you are. I, I knew you'd be there someplace. Um, let's go take that test. Let's go get on the bus. Let's figure it out. And, um, and I wish I had done that when I was younger. Uh, I think I would have done better in school. I think I would have um, done a little bit better in social situations. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't have lived life uh, afraid. And, um, and so not fighting it, you know, that's a big thing. And the other thing I learned was to take out the, the narrative of it, meaning, oh my gosh, I have a test. I'm nervous because I have a test. Take out, I have a test. And just go, oh, I'm nervous. And then you say, oh, I'm just nervous. And just think about that. Just go, oh, I'm, I'm panicking right now. I have anxiety. And that's fine. Uh, a lot of people have it. And then you go, oh, okay, that's, oh, I have a test. Okay, but I don't have a test. I don't have anything. I'm just nervous. And then it'll kind of, this is me nervous. And then it'll kind of go away. Um, but you can, you can manage it and you can figure it out and and uh, doing it when you're younger is the best. To have those tools when you're younger is, is uh, indispensable, and I wish I had done it. But if I can do it at the age of when I figured it out, really, was when I was 37, uh, you guys can figure it out, um, I think, as well. All right. We got this. All right. So I, I again, I think that that little clip of his is so, so good. So right off the bat, I think Bill Hader should be commended for being uh, uh, courageous enough as a celebrity of his status to be talking about anxiety, talking about his own anxiety and how it impacts him. Um, but also that uh, he was talking about how one can get better. It wasn't him complaining about how terrible it is, and how awful it is. Um, but he's he, he's offering advice, and and the way that he was offering advice, it's that is advice from someone who has put in the legwork of overcoming it, or at the very least working through it. It's also important because it helps dispel this assumption that performers are always outgoing people who love being the center of attention or without fear. This is incredibly wrong. This is just wrong. So many performers, musicians, actors, uh, just across the board do have anxiety. And lastly, what's important about it is that he normalizes that people 
get anxiety, they use the tools of therapy, and then they can get on with their life. And they do get on with their life. Now, I think it's important that a, quote, normal, he's, I'll consider him a normal guy, that a normal guy is doing this because he's not a yoga master. He's not a person who teaches mindfulness. He's not a guy, he's not a therapist. Um, he's, but he's a, he's a guy who has a job, who's telling you, who's telling others that he, the tools worked for him. Because, of course, a yoga teacher, a mindfulness teacher, a, a therapist, a schmuck like myself, of course, we're going to tell you that the tools work. But instead, he's an actor. He's found that he's able to find the light at the end of the tunnel. So I think there are four important points that I just want to go over from this video, and then I'll get on to the question. That number one, he was tired of how his anxiety was affecting something that mattered to him, and that was his job as a performer. You and I don't change anything until something that we value in our life is being pressured and is becoming exceptionally difficult. And he was honest about the fact that his anxiety was overtaking him. And it takes a lot to say that this thing that feels like it doesn't make any sense to us is actually having more of an impact on our life than we would like it to have. This is some honesty that uh, is difficult to come by. So I think that's number one, uh, one point that's important. Not, this is not necessarily a hierarchical th uh, list of mine. Number two, he realized that his anxiety was not going away, and trying to avoid or suppress the anxiety wasn't going to work either. He couldn't just turn a blind eye to it anymore. He had to do something about it, which leads me to number three, is that he befriended his anxiety. And yeah, as you said, it kind of sounds crazy, but instead of trying to banish it, he gave it room, gave it space. He said, I became friends with it, meaning he stopped being surprised and upset that it was there. And instead, he expected that it would be there. And he just said, all right, come along for the ride. And lastly, number four is the tool that he used of, of quote, he called it removing the narrative. Um, so, in by the narrative, I'll call the feared story. He disconnected the feeling that he had from what the feared story was. So instead of saying, oh my gosh, I'm nervous about the test and, and then, you know, all the stuff that's associated with it, you know, failing, not getting into college or um, not getting the degree or certification that he wanted or whatever his fear was going to be, he instead said, you know, what? I'm nervous. I'm feeling these sensations and that's fine. Because he showed himself that he can be in that moment, he can be in the moment in a state of nervousness and anxiety and still be rather than the feared story's future-based narrative that he'd fail and be destroyed. Again, instead, he said, oh, I just feel nervous. That's actually not that bad. It just, it sucks. I'm sure he didn't like it, but brought himself back to, I'm just feeling these feelings. That's a lot more survivable than, the, the re, than quote, the reality of the story that he's going to fail and it's going to be terrible and he's going to have all these negative outcomes. Oh, that's so tough to overcome, especially because he has no control over that in the moment. But the one thing you can control was, you know, I feel nervous. And when we do that, we suck that power away from that feeling and that feared thought. And gives us freedom to feel it. So, I think that video was incredibly important, and I just wanted to share that with everybody. 
So if you have a moment, you can go over and find that video, add a comment, share it with someone on Facebook, uh, on Instagram, however it is else that you share it. Uh, I, I think videos like this need to be seen more. I think more quote, regular folks need to be making videos like this. So, all right, enough of that. On to the question. So this week's question comes via the fearcastpodcast.com website uh, from a listener named Craig. He asks... So recently, I've heard about cognitive distortions. I realized that I immensely suffer from polarized thinking and overgeneralization. Do you mind elaborating on these toxic patterns? Thanks. Your over-anxious listener, Craig. Craig, thank you so much for that question. Uh, and, and it's a super good question because you've heard, uh, you, you listeners have heard me talk about cognitive distortions before, or how we would uh, uh, challenge them or use them to reconsider uh, the way that we're thinking about our thoughts. And, and if you've gone through therapy at all, uh, specifically either cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, something to that effect, uh, likely speaking, you have worked through or, or talked about some cognitive distortions uh, in the past. So, cognitive distortions are going to be part of cognitive therapy. Again, it's, it has to do with our thoughts. Um, cognitive therapy then led into cognitive behavioral therapy, where then cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy got jammed in together uh, and ultimately created a theory which makes a whole lot of sense. It's that how what our thoughts are are going to impact what our behaviors will be. So, like, you know, my example of snakes, right? If we think about snakes and, and our brain says, uh, well, snakes are bad, they're going to, if I'm around one, they're going to bite and kill me. Well, I don't want that to happen. So uh, if I if I have that thought, and if I see a snake, and I have the thought, well, I'm going to run away from the snake. My thought impacted my behavior. Now, when we think about cognitive distortions, think about it as screwed up thinking. So cognitive thinking, distortions, screwed up screwed up thinking. So if we have screwed up thinking, what we ultimately are trying to do is to create a more corrected view of the way that we're thinking. Now, we talked about this before. All thoughts you and I are ever going to have, including all interactions we have, types of relationships we're going to have, interactions, all that stuff, those all things are neutral. But based on how we interpret those things, those events, those people, those items, it's then going to skew the meaning of that one way or another. It's then going to make it good, bad, safe, or dangerous, right? We talked about the snake. Well, my brain interpreted a snake in a very specific uh, light, and it said, this is what a snake means. This is what's going to happen about a snake. So because of that, it very much colored it and colored it in a very bad light. Now I don't want to be around that, so I'm going to run like hell. Now, our brains will use distortions in very specific sort of ways. You can think about it as like it's putting a lens over the way that we perceive the world around us. Think about like if you've ever worn colored sunglasses, like like red sunglasses or, or you know, blue or, you know, even if they're just uh, even if they're just like brown. Right. We have those sunglasses, too. It 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 subtly colors the or very much colors sometimes the the colors of everything that we see now if we didn't know we were wearing those sunglasses um and we just woke up and we looked at a white wall and we had red sunglasses on and someone said hey what color is that wall you'd probably go well it's red and of course you would because everything in your vision suggests that that wall is red now, if all of a sudden you recognized that, that, that you're wearing those sunglasses, you'd take those, you'd pull them away from your face, and you'd say, 
oh, well, now I see that the majority of this wall is red. Now, we didn't get to destroy those because we'd say, yeah, I still see these two little red dots because part of our brain will still see our distortion. We'll still kind of, in part of our brain, we'll still see it. It's not like we can just you know snap our fingers and make all that, all that thinking go away. So then, the way we can use cognitive distortions or identifying cognitive distortions as a helpful form of therapy is first to learn about what they are, to learn about how they are distorted our world around us or our perception of the world around us. And then once we can recognize which ones we're doing and how it's skewing our perception, then we can add in or intentionally rethink our thoughts to help create a more corrected, not a correct, but a more corrected view of the situation, the item, whatever it is. What this helps us to do is to create a firmer grounding from which to take a leap into doing exposures, into facing our fears. That being said, learning about and addressing distortions is not the end all for treatment in and of itself. In fact, they don't do much to help with the anxiety other than help illuminate how our brain is skewing our perception of the world. And again, to develop the more rational type of thinking. Before I go on any further, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Every one of these tools that I ever talk about on this podcast or even in my sessions can all be used compulsively. This one is no different. This one, just like the alternative thought records or challenging those thoughts in that way or that, that sort of tool can very much become compulsive in the sense that if we, some folks will, will use this tool as a way of giving themselves confirmation that everything's going to be safe. It's kind of like this idea that, okay, if I can identify how this thought is distorted, then my fear won't happen because I can prove that it's untrue, which is in and of itself a stretch and a lie and a distortion because we can't necessarily prove that everything's going to be safe and everything's going to be okay. But we can talk about likelihood now, we'll, we'll get to that. Very often, sufferers with the pure O types of, of, of OCD sometimes have a problem using this tool as a sense of reassurance. That being said, this can be used compulsively by any subtype of OCD. It can be used for someone with generalized anxiety to give themselves certainty. Any type of anxiety, someone can use this tool compulsively. So, be cautious when you're using this tool. Now, as mentioned before, everybody has cognitive distortions, whether or, not, whether or not you do or do not have an anxiety disorder, an anxiety spectrum disorder, your brain will use cognitive distortions or be guilty of or suffer with cognitive distortions. Because ultimately, it's the fight or flight part of our brain that produces and presents a, dis- a distorted thought, a distorted line of thinking. And this is done as a means of self-protection. Distortions are often an overestimation of the level of risks involved, which then, in turn, increase the feared response, therefore the anxiety. So again, it's going to overplay and overestimate the types of dangers and the types of negative outcomes that are going to be ahead. Therefore, we're going to over-respond to it because we don't want to have that outcome happen. But challenging distorted and inaccurate thoughts can help create some distance between you and the thought, poking holes in the argument, thereby devaluing the power of the thought, and then decreasing the urge to follow up with compulsive responses. So, Craig, if I wanted to talk about cognitive distortions on this podcast and make it an exhaustive list, it would either be 47 hours long or it would be have to be broken up and we could do an entire podcast just on each episode talking about its own cognitive distortions. I don't have the time for that. I don't think you do either. 
Everyone would be bored. Nobody wants that. So I'm just going to briefly talk about three distortions that I find and uh, find on a regular basis, some of which I experience as well. Um, and these are some three of the most common that we see with anxiety and OCD. And I'm going to be talking about catastrophizing, black and white thinking, and emotional reasoning. So we're going to be talking about those, but I also want to talk about those in the framework of two examples. So one will be social anxiety and the other will be HOCD. So I want to give you an example vignette of both of these, and then we'll talk about how some distortions might be at play in this. So for the social anxiety, you want to think about a kid going to a new school. Others are excited for him to go out, meet new people, and get connected with different groups, and yeah, I suppose the kid is also. However, when he gets to school, he sees a group of other students, and he suddenly gets the thought of others making fun of him, and he starts feeling pressure in his chest, and his throat tightens up, and he's feeling pretty awful. As a result, he feels discouraged from these thoughts, and he says to himself, Ugh, I'm such a loser. I'm never going to make any friends. And then he just walks away. And then he spends the rest of his day trying to kind of skirt away from people, not really wanting to talk to people, keeping his head down the entire day and avoiding other people. All right, so that's example number one. So example number two is HOCD. So in this, think about a, a woman who typically identifies as straight, is changing at the gym, and suddenly gets a sexually explicit thought about another woman at the gym, feels a tingling sensation in her groin, and wonders what the heck's going on. She suddenly worries that her sexuality is flipped and that now she's gay. While she tries to remind herself that she's never before had a sexual attraction towards another woman, she just can't shake this fear that the sensation in her groin means that she was turned on with a thought and in the presence of another woman. She fears that if this means she's gay, she has to break up with her boyfriend, she has to move to West Hollywood, and probably be rejected by her conservative family. All right, so those are just two brief vignettes. So, so what are the three distortions that I'm going to be going over today? So, catastrophizing. A brief definition you can think about is, is that you conclude the worst possible event or outcome will occur. So, it's going to be a catastrophe, right? Black and white thinking. So, this is kind of the overgeneralization you were talking about, Craig. So, black and white thinking is also known as all or nothing thinking. So, it's a very polarized view. So, it says, you look at things in absolute black and white categories. So, it's good or bad, or it's safe or it's dangerous, one or the other. And the last one I see a lot of is emotional reasoning. Now, Simply put, this one is, you reason from how you feel. In other words, feelings are facts. So, pretty cut and dry with that one. Now, the other one that you mentioned, overgeneralization, I'm not going to be talking about explicitly here, but you can think about that one as making a conclusion based on one event. So, the occurrence of one thing or one situation tells us everything we need to know. We draw a conclusion based on just that one event. So again, we can spend a lot of time talking about all the different ones there are. Uh, and if you do, if anyone does a Google search, you'll find a gazillion of them. When we start to notice the most common ones that you and I experience, then we can start to look out for them. We can start to keep an eye out for how our brain is going to start to skew our thoughts. And the best way to use cognitive distortions to our benefit is to start writing down how you notice these distortions in your life. And when you notice them, call them out by name. So when you notice you're doing emotional reasoning or catastrophizing or, or black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, call it out. 
When you catch yourself as the victim of these distortions, point them out to yourself. Because when you do, it will bring yourself back to the moment of, I'm having this thought. My brain is skewing up my perception of reality in this specific way. And once we do, then what we can do is we can intentionally, in this moment, create a little bit of distance between us and that thought and, and bring in kind of a more grounded, more rational view of the world around us. Uh, and it's, it's kind of a rational alternative to the, the distorted, feared story our brain is giving us. Now, for the most part, when we catch ourselves doing these distortions, we can point it out to ourselves and then remind ourselves of the alternative. Again, it's not going to make ourselves feel better, but it can give us a firmer grounding in reality, in, in the truth of what we know about ourselves and of, of other people, etc., etc. So I want to go over some ways that we can start to develop these alternative thoughts that we can remind ourselves. Now, the more that we remind ourselves of the rational alternative, the rational counterpoint, the more it starts to become more of our automatic thoughts, the more it starts to show up on a regular basis and kind of be seen side by side. And the more that we practice following through on our alternative, our more rational thought, the more we start to reinforce that that one is the most likely important one and the one that deserves more of our attention and more of the airtime in our brain. So, for catastrophizing, you think about the basic premise of developing your, your rational counterpoint is pointing out to yourself, one, I'm catastrophizing again. In reality, what I'm afraid of probably won't happen that way. Now, notice it's not to say it's never going to happen or my feared story will never happen or that nothing bad is ever going to happen, but it's to say what I'm afraid of probably won't happen just like that. So, in the case of our social anxiety guy, he may be able to remind himself, you know what? Not everyone's going to love me, but not everyone's going to hate me. Furthermore, not having a bunch of friends doesn't make me a loser. Now, both of those are true statements. Not everyone's going to love me. Not everyone's going to hate me. This is true. But his fear was everyone's going to reject him. It's catastrophizing. That's the worst case scenario. There's going to be someone that's going to like him. Furthermore, not having a bunch of friends doesn't then make him a loser. Now, we can also call this one labeling, but that's a whole other distortion. For the HSCD case with catastrophizing, this woman could remind herself, you know, even if I was gay, my parents may still accept me. And there's nothing that's going to make me move to West Hollywood if I don't want to move there. Now, I know this is kind of a silly example, but again, it's kind of poking holes in what that feared story is. And this is even accepting the premise that, hey, maybe I am going to be gay. If I was, even if I was, the, the, my, my fear, even if that was true, maybe the way the fear is actually going to play out may not be exactly what my feared story is playing out. So moving on to the second one, black and white thinking, otherwise known as all or nothing. The premise of this is, is what is the third option? So all, nothing, left, right. What is the thing in the middle? What is the combination of these two? In other words, if your brain is saying there's only this, this uh, uh, false dichotomy, it is a false dichotomy of, of yes or no, there is a maybe, there is something in the middle. Almost everything has a third option. So your job is to come up with at least one third option. And generally speaking, there is a gazillion third options with our fears. So pick one. And remind yourself, hey, this thing could also happen instead of just these two. So for the social anxiety kid, he could say, some people are going to like me. He can also remind himself, I've had friends in the past, and I'm likely to make some friends again. These are true statements. 
It doesn't mean that he's going to make all the friends right now and he's going to make all the cool kid friends or whatever it is. But but yeah, so he's had friends in the past. His brain is saying he's going to make no friends. Well, that's BS. He's not going to make all the friends or suddenly become at this school the most popular kid at school. But you know what? He's made some friends before. He has the blueprint of doing that. So he's likely to make friends at some point in the future. For the HSCD woman, they might say... One groinal sensation doesn't automatically make me totally, completely, 100% gay. It's akin to saying, cutting down one tree does not make someone a lumberjack. Furthermore, she could say, there's no evidence to suggest that I am gay, nor that this is how one discovers that they are gay. An important reminder with these cognitive distortions, these aren't meant to be perfect. There is no right alternative thought. If you spent a little bit of time, you could probably come up with some better alternatives than perhaps I am. And great. It doesn't mean that they are right. It just means that you're creating an argument that is based in reality. It's based in rationality that you're trying to bring in to that moment of anxiety. All right. Lastly, emotional reasoning. Simply put, consider feelings aren't facts. Feeling something doesn't make it true. So for the socially anxious kid, you could say, I'm feeling scared about meeting new people, but that doesn't mean bad things will in fact happen. You could also go on to say, I feel scared during scary movies, but that doesn't mean I'm actually in danger. You and I have felt this before. We've been in scary movies. We watch scary movies. We feel the anxious feelings and discomfort about the bad guy going to get... We're not actually in danger. We're just sitting in a movie theater. We're sitting in our living room watching something that's scary. And yet we feel those feelings, but the feelings aren't facts. All they are are feelings. They're information. You know my policy on feelings. A feel is just a four-letter F word. I'm also going to be the only therapist that's ever going to tell you that feelings are stupid. And emotional reasoning is why I say that feelings are stupid. We give them so much credit. Instead, if we say, man, you know what? Feelings are stupid. I'm feeling way too much right now. This is useless. It doesn't mean we don't have any feelings or we don't think any of them are important. But again, we're not going to black and white thinking everything that even I say. But it's to say, don't give all the feelings all the credit all the time. The HSCD woman she can remind herself that groinal sensations don't always and only mean sexual arousal, which is true. And feelings are not facts, and I don't have to respond to all my feelings, nor do all my feelings represent all things about me. You could do this. If you've ever done a Kegel exercise, and this is the ex- the, the, the feeling of tensing uh, your, your groinal muscles. So uh, it's as if you're, you're, you're going to the bathroom and you're tightening the muscles to stop the, the flow of, of your pee. Doing that draws your attention to your groin. That's a groinal sensation. You and I can feel that all the time. We can do it whenever we want. If it were true that having that groinal sensation around anything meant that now you were fully sexually attracted to that thing or whatever that person or place was, we'd probably get into a lot of trouble. We'd probably find ourselves falling in love with all sorts of things. And that's just simply not the case. Another great example I have about emotional reasoning is think about your mom. I think we've talked about this before, but I'll say it again. Generally speaking, we say we love our mom. Or if you don't, I love my dad. If you don't, think about something you love. Sometimes, whatever that person is, or whoever that person is, rather, that that we love, sometimes we get mad at that person because we're in relationships with them and we feel happy and sad and mad and angry and whatever. 
So with that person that you say that you love, at the time that you are angry with them, you're not feeling those lovey-dovey feelings towards them. But if you were to then be confronted and say, and someone said, do you still love this person? During the time that you're angry, you might still say, well, yes, I'm just mad at them. That illustrates the point that feelings are stupid. And that just because we feel something doesn't mean that it's a fact. If feelings were facts, then the second that you would stop, you felt angry towards this person, you would say, nope, don't love them anymore. Hate them. Anger only. But we both know that's not the case. Our anxious brain wants to tell us that feelings are facts. All right. So we, we've just briefly gone over how we can start to challenge those thoughts. Now, the more that we start to do this, we more that we start to see that our brain gives us these distorted thoughts all the time, the more that we start to recognize, my brain just gives me a bunch of really dumb thoughts all the time. A lot of my thoughts don't deserve any of my attention. And this was what brings me to the other approach that you can use, or one of the many approaches, but the other one that I'm going to talk about today. And it's what I like to call the eye roll approach. And that is when I am feeling or experiencing my cognitive distortions, and yes, I sometimes experience them too, when I get them, I will roll my eyes at myself and just say, these are my crazy man thoughts, meaning I'm thinking like a crazy man right now. Now, these are not the terms you have to use. I recognize that the word crazy is is offensive to some. This is how I refer to myself sometimes, and it's the eye roll approach. It's that I don't need to take this thought seriously right now. And this approach, the eye roll approach, is developed over time of consistently identifying the thoughts as distortions, undermining their credibility, and intentionally choosing a different reaction that is other than your compulsion, meaning other than in response to your feared thought. So once we develop this rational thought, we respond as if that one is true. We follow through on this more rational, reasonable one instead of the one that our fear wants us to get into. Now, as I mentioned before, distortions and challenging them won't make you feel better because that's also not the point. They're supposed to give you a firmer grounding from which to leap off into exposure. They're meant to give you a clearer sense of thought, to put some distance between you and the thought, meaning to to not prove it one way or another, and then to help in your more rational response, which is the non-compulsive response. This is the exposure and response prevention. Think about it, the compulsion resistance. Sometimes developing your alternative thought, your rational thought, is difficult in the moment of your high anxiety. During those times, write down what that thought was. Write down what your feared thought was, and maybe write down what your distortion was. And even if you can't even do that in the moment, write down what your feared thought was. And wait 24 hours. Likely speaking, in 24 hours, your fear will have subsided, meaning the feeling will have subsided. You're going to get back to your rational thinking. Once your rational thinking kicks back in, revisit those thoughts and start considering, what is, what, what, what's another way to view this? What's maybe a more rational uh, perspective? How might my brain have been distorted? How might have I been experiencing some screwed up thinking? And write those down. Once you do... Keep them on a little note card, keep them with you, remind yourself, you can review it, but only to the point that you've then internalized it so that you can then take that with you and start taking a risk and relying more on the alternative. Doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect, but we're looking for improvement, not perfection. So lastly, remember that we're, we're, we're working towards accepting uncertainty. Pointing out and challenging your distorted thoughts won't make everything okay and won't prevent bad things from happening. Remember that even a non-response to a feared thought 
could result in something bad happening. So not responding to the fear thought, not doing anything, something bad could still happen. In the effort of accepting uncertainty, we must accept that despite a thought being considered a distortion, we can still be wrong. People get into car accidents. We get into car accidents. We might be laughed at or booed off stage, and we might actually have a terrible disease if that's what you're afraid of. But remember that those situations and events are rare, and that's the point. Your anxious brain is going to say, oh, it's likely, it's, it's most definitely going to happen. It's going to happen right now because that one thing happened to your fear of overgeneralization. I felt one groinal sensation once. That means I'm gay. That's the only thing it could mean. It could mean a lot of things, but your brain is going to suggest one story. So instead, remind yourself, that's a distortion. What's another way to think about this? What's a more rational view of this? Might not take that anxiety away, but we want to respond to what our rationality is and then move forward with that. Over time, it's going to become our more rational thought. And again, it should give us a grounding to then take a risk. But that's where we get into exposure and response prevention and is a whole other conversation. So, Craig, I know that was a... Um, roundabout way of answering your question, but that's some ways that you can think about cognitive distortions. Now, there are a ton of other uh, ways to look at them, a ton of other distortions. Uh, look through them, see which ones sound more like you. Other listeners, read through other ones online and see which ones sound more like you um, and start to practice these things. Point them out to yourself. So, Craig, I hope you found this helpful and uh, thank you so much for the question. All right, everybody, thank you so much for making it through this episode of the FearCast. It means so much to me that any of you and all of you listen. Uh, it truly, truly does. Um, if you like the podcast, if you like the FearCast, go over to iTunes, wherever else you get your podcasts, and uh, give me a like, give me a review if you could. Uh, it, uh, uh, it it warms my, my uh, black shriveled little heart, and it also helps other people to find the show too. Uh, if you hate the show and you don't like it, uh, tough. You can go ahead and keep your opinions to yourself but uh go ahead and keep listening that would be great uh it's just super fun to go torture yourself i guess um uh, and to that point i suppose if you hate the show go ahead and tell me i uh, i i also want to know how to make this show better if you like the show and there's other stuff in it that you do like tell me that too go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can shoot me a message there uh, in the submit a question link if you have a review of it there uh or for some feedback you can also let me know in that section too um, you can find me at uh, you can find the podcast at iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play uh, and also most recently uh, I'm also on Spotify you can also go over to fearcastpodcast.com and download it directly there or um, you know you are already listening to this so wherever you're all, you ever so wherever you're listening to this you can listen to your podcast from there too so Mazel tov. Anyways, so as always, everybody, please remember that the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have a question about getting started in therapy or would like some more resources or referrals, uh, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. Go to the, the Find Help link, and there's going to be some information for you there. So, everybody, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.